Welcome to the greatest discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of the greatest generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Ben, neither of us have been fired from this show yet. <laughs> but in, uh, I guess, what you could consider uh, three bombshells of news dropped all at once. Pretty big news out of the Star Trek Discovery camp this week. Yeah, we had an episode recorded and ready to go, and uh, we are still going to play that for the people. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's going to come up after this. But we felt weird like not addressing this because it came out after. We sent our, our uh, wonderful guest, Manu Sadia, home, and I think like that afternoon this news broke. Uh, so we felt like we should uh, we should hop in here and, and talk about it. Because we knew we knew some of this going into this because we have back channels into the writers' room at Star Trek Discovery, the nature of which we cannot reveal. Yeah, and I think it was smart to not break the news ourselves. I don't think we are that kind of show, and I don't think we're those kinds of people. But I, the news that we are talking about that we have not said is that Aaron Harberts and Gretchen Berg are out as showrunners at Disco. Yeah, and uh, Alex Kurtzman is uh, is next in line. He ascended to the throne. The thing that we had heard before this broke was that Akiva Goldsman had been had been uh, shown the exit, uh, at least from the writers' room. And uh, I, I was very interested to hear the to see the news because it kind of tacks the Akiva Goldsman news on as kind of like secondary. Also, this right. happened. Yeah. But, uh, to, as far as we understood, that happened first. Yeah. And for very similar reasons where like there was kind of a hostile, uncool atmosphere and people re- were really not getting along in the writer's room. This kind of news is uh, is surprising in some ways and then unsurprising in a whole lot of others in that uh, the creative life and the creative career is a stressful life and a stressful career. And you you hear about this more and more. Fortunately, this stuff is getting rooted out of productions and of shows and of movies. The, the like people ex- excusing behaving badly as as being passionate Right. I think that's been a that's been a confusion that's been around for uh, a century. <laughs> it is possible to make creative work and not be a dick about it. Yeah. Um, and uh you know, like I think that we have hesitated to like know quite how to comment on some of these things with Disco because I think we both feel a little bit like dicks having to say anything about it, right? Like we don't really know what's going on. We don't we don't know everybody's mind, and and this is this is all third hand news that we're seeing. So sure, maybe they are dicks, maybe they aren't. Maybe you know it's just the kind of Game of Thrones that happens at any big, you know, high profile media company where there's always angling and and backstabbing and people people rising and people falling. I mean, I think we've both experienced that uh, in in our careers to one extent or another. And I think what irritates me the most 
about, and and this is not to say that anything that you've said is something I disagree with, but like the company line from this production from people like Berg and Harberts were that like, this is creative work coming from a diverse group of people who care deeply about each other's well-being and about creating, creating a great piece of Star Trek work that is reflective of the values of the people who create it. Like right. that has been, that has been a touchstone for the show from the start. And it is deeply irritating that, uh, that that's been the company line and you read and hear stories like the ones that we're hearing from the writer's room. Like it is, it's that kind of hypocrisy that makes it so hard to believe anyone when they say that they are operating from a position of, of the greater good. Yeah, it's tough. I think that, you know, they made a good season of television. Um, one of the things in the Hollywood Reporter piece that broke all of this news that has me a little bit anxious about season two is that a primary reason for their firing, aside from the fact that there was a lot of onset hostility and and uncool vibes between them and their writing staff, uh, they also burned a ton of budget in the first five episodes. And like CBS is not making the production whole. The first five episodes are shot, they're in the can, and the rest of the season is going to have budget taken away from it because of those overruns. Yeah, I hope you're excited for a clip show. <laughs> it's a season two necessity. Right. That's a bummer to think about, right? Like the idea that uh, we're going to get a fully or overfunded first five apps and then they just have to do their best with with the rest of what's left. It's hard to predict what the consequence is going to be for the remainder of the season two episodes. I mean, you got to you got to feel great for the uh, directors and producers behind the first five apps like, ooh, <laughs> yeah. got away with got away with those. <laughs> In the can. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Like, the the other thing to say is that we, we both went into season one with very low expectations, so perhaps this is a good thing, you know, for season two to to have, like, level set our expectations as low because of these reports, you know? Yeah. Um, but I guess the maybe the silver lining is that it sounds like Kurtzman is, like, coming in midstream and they're going to keep producing the show on the schedule that they've been working on and like they're not going to delay it at least from this uh there's no there's no sign that there'll be any delays yet so keeping our fingers crossed that uh we get to go back into full swing on the greatest discovery pretty soon (laughs) yeah i hope for the same and i hope uh i hope for everyone that's left uh involved in this production that it's uh, smoother sailing from here i don't think anyone enjoys making creative work while being yelled at for the effort so hopefully this gets it fixed so uh i guess this was our marin for greatest discovery and uh the next thing you hear will be our hang with manu sadia of the great uh star trek popular economics book treconomics uh we had a really fun conversation with him and uh i hope you guys enjoy it we have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. What? Who are you? We've encountered them. Those are Klingons? We have a guest today, Adam. He has a name that I am always a little bit scared to pronounce. 
It's Manu Sadia. Hey, uh, there he is. <laughs> uh, Manu wrote a great book that I really enjoyed called Treconomics. It's kind of like a popular economics treatise on like how practical the idea of a post-scarcity future as depicted in Star Trek would be. And he hates Star Trek Discoveries. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I do not hate. <laughs> I am full of love for everything. I thought it'd be interesting to have you on because I think we've had a lot of people on that were uh, big fans of the show and you have some criticisms, right? I do, um, but I would like to emphasize the positive first, which is um, I'm really happy that somebody decided to bring back the Narns on screen. Um, <laughs> and I thought, you know, since I really like Babylon 5 too, I thought this was nice. <laughs> Uh, you were saying something about Babylon 5 before we started recording that uh, I found kind of baffling. Well, you I said mean, it was a precursor to Discovery? Well, are we to believe that these are taking place in the same universe? Well, uh, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but like, the, the idea of, you know, a, a sort of soap opera in space yeah. with, with weird aliens and the Narns. Um, I think that's something I'm rewatching Babylon 5 right now because, uh, they just put it on Amazon prime. Right. Uh, and it's 20 years old and, and, you know, it's clunky and <laughs> like some of the production value is just not there, but the storytelling is pretty amazing. Uh, but, but I don't want to turn this show into <laughs> the greatest uh, Babylon 5. The greatest uh, Babylon 5 <laughs> will never happen. Yeah, I, I guarantee that. <laughs> no, no, but like, you guys have to explain me why. You're, you're, a very, you're exciting about three people in our audience <laughs> with all this Babylon 5 talk. So, so it's like, die, Babylon 5, die. Uh, no, but like, like at least in terms of the, the, the form... Which you know is non-episodic and and a long story unfolding over however many episodes. Uh, Babylon Five was very early on the sort of uh, what is now standard for the golden age of TV. Right. They almost feel like Twin Peaks every once in a while because Twin Peaks was really the first to do yeah. this. And you do have some actors from Twin Peaks who show up in Babylon Five as well as Star Trek actors. Uh, I like those choices. I mean, you know, so I thought Babylon 5 was, uh, had, had, and then if you remember. The thing that, about Babylon 5 that I can't get over, if, I'm sorry for interrupting, <laughs> but it's that it looks like cable science fiction in a way that is, that like Andromeda was, or. No, like, Andromeda was worse. I, I fully agree Although and understand Robert that. Robert Wolf, you know, great writer and. There's a look to it that looks related in that way. There's like a gloss, like a cable TV gloss. Yeah. The way that like uh, the Stargate television show also has this look to me. There's something 
that look you mean the the set redresses and the yeah. weird lighting and I think and, it might be a lighting thing there there's like a unit a unified theory of science fiction lighting at work here on yes. those shows and obviously like what kind of uh, film stock they would use and it probably was not the super premium uh, oh yeah they're know, totally the, like uh, the broadsheet film stock <laughs> uh, they, they bought it out of a truck in a parking lot <laughs> <laughs> they they went in to buy film and the guy was like, well, I could get you some film, but I could also get you some film for 40% off if you meet me in my car after work. It's been warming in my van for the last eight hours. No, I mean, it's true that the transfer to video like does not do a great service to it. But you could say the same for next generation, at least until... The HD remaster made the next HD. gen look really beautiful. Yeah, that came uh, out beautiful. Um, that show was lit differently for the first two seasons, though. Like they yeah. they had it figured out by the third. I think The Expanse, which is a show I like a lot, and I think has just been acquired by Amazon, has the same like bad sci-fi cable lighting that you're talking about. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that is a tradition that is alive and strong today, and. Like I was kind of wondering if Discovery was going to wind up looking like that because it's like yeah. I don't know. Like, do you just is no, that just what everybody does now? No, they're making it in Canada. Uh, yeah, and like the <laughs> Discovery looks a billion times better than the Expanse. No, but also Discovery. I think uh, what I heard like ten to twelve million dollars per episode. Yeah. So it's it's like that's the number I've heard. So. Yeah, but like at least half a million dollars of that is just cocaine for the craft services table, right? <laughs> a lot of well-paid gaffers on that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the. Um, but but the general idea of of this sort of a continuous story that unfolds over you know several. Deep Space Nine adopted that format uh, as sort of an echo to Babylon 5. There, there's a funny story about it that apparently Straczynski, so the creator of Babylon 5, had pitched a show on the space station to Paramount. And uh, lo and behold, a year later, they do Deep Space Nine and they nearly killed Babylon 5. Which was also first friend syndication. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was that would have been a mercy killing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Does uh, what are there like five seasons of Babylon Five? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and they had to shorten it, and then after the first season, they changed lead, so they get Bruce Boxleitner. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, the Bruce Boxleitner. <laughs> Welcome to the greatest Babylon, a podcast where we dunk on Babylon Five for an hour. <laughs> no, no, but the, the larger point holds, though. The, the the idea of doing a sort of operatic, novelistic type of uh, science fiction show. Really, Babylon Five was the first to try. I, I I was trying to think if there's anything else like that on TV before. I mean, maybe Twin Peaks, but Twin Peaks is not science fiction. Yeah. So, so, but you know, like the sort of big payoff, big stakes, melodrama, <laughs> daddy issues, like the 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 ferment of mm -hmm. any kind of uh, bingeable show is there in Babylon Five, and then you find it in uh, Discovery. Was which uh, is why yeah, so I, when you're watching your Game of Thrones or your 
I don't know, Better Call Saul, just know you're really watching Babylon 5. <laughs> You've got Bruce Boxleiter to thank. <laughs> I mean, he, he's such a great actor. <laughs> was that, um, was Babylon 5, like it always lived on Sci-Fi Channel, right? Was it sci- no? It, no, it, it was first on it was UPN a, when I was. Was it yeah. or WGN or something? Oh, I'm only familiar with it from I guess reruns on Sci-Fi. Then yeah, huh? Yeah, and then and then the last season was picked up by TNT, maybe. Yeah, something I think it, it it has a troubled history. It was one of those things where it was like. I think it it started the way TNG did, where it was like not really on a network, but it was available yeah. for syndication. First run syndication. It, yeah. it was a. That's what made TNG so unique. Yeah, is because nobody except the producers had full creative control, um, so they could do whatever the hell they wanted. They proved that first run syndication for niche shows was possible. Yes. And that you could have a seventh season of socialism on TV uh, <laughs> without interference from uh, the powers that be. Right. If you just make a really good show about socialism. Yes. And like, you make Barney Boxmaker your, <laughs> the face of your show. <laughs> good things are going to happen. So in the case of Discovery, and that's why it's interesting as well, is Discovery is also trying to blaze a trail, sort of, for the franchise and using a new uh, distribution medium. Yeah. Um, so, so I was talking to friends who are in the industry and writers and all that, and they're like, ah, yeah, it's a streaming show. So it, it's it, among some, and you know, more um, exalted people mm-hmm. in the industry, um, writing for a streaming show is still not like the like the big prize is network. It's like yeah, a low yeah. rent the, opportunity. Yeah, like the big prize is the Orville. Uh, like that's the and yet the they're making like a big awards. Like I mean, one th- weird thing about living in LA is you see like the uh, for your consideration everywhere. <laughs> and Manu and I were having coffee a couple of weeks ago at like a normal coffee shop that normal people go to, and we were like, "Why are there Star Trek logos all over the place in here?" And apparently there was just some, like, marketing push of For Your Consideration. By CBS. By CBS for Star Trek Discovery. Like wow. In, in, yeah, on Sunset Boulevard. Like your foam art was... Uh, <laughs> yeah. was I, it, was the, uh, it was the Vulcan salute. Yeah. <laughs> I can make a pretty credible Saru's face in, <laughs> in my foam. And then you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to try our temporary threat ganglia <laughs> breakfast? sandwich <laughs> venti is a large coffee really says who fellini yeah so discovery is like that i mean discovery new medium new thing everything's aligned i know you guys love it but i'm sort of i'm like eh. <laughs> I, 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 do you think it's just not your era like yeah, I mean I'm old too. That's for sure. I mean, but you grew up. Uh, I was watching... gonna say it, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> but you're like a TOS guy, right? Are you kidding? No, no, you're a TNG completely. But yeah. what was your what? Because you told this story in your yeah, in your I mean, book. I mean, like but I saw the movies. Being which exposed is, to the movies. My first. first experience with Trek was was 
the motion picture. Wow. I must have been eight. That wasn't enough of a deterrent. <laughs> oh, no, man. I was like, because it was like watching Cousteau. You know, I grew up in France. Right. And the biggest thing on TV in France when I was a kid, because we had like three TV channels and they were all public. Uh-huh. So it was like PBS three times. It was Cousteau. <laughs> so, so Jim Kirk really is the sexual Cousteau <laughs> of science fiction. Yeah. Although, you know, like in, in the motion picture, somehow they, they managed to actually rein him in. It like obviously he didn't realize how big he was. Yeah. He was just happy to be there. And they're all happy to be there, by the way. <laughs> and then and then there's Spock. He didn't have his price line money yet. Mm. No. Uh, and, and you know, it was he was not a cultural icon yet. I mean he was TJ Hooker. Yeah. You know, so so it's like I gotta start sliding over the hoods <laughs> of police cruisers. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, with uh, Heather Locklear. Yeah. Yeah, that was TJ Hooker, man. I've always wondered something about the motion pictures, how it played in foreign markets, because the whole, like, twist at the end is that the no, alien man. spaceship is... We, has, all, like, we all grew up... I remember my class project that year was to do a model of the Voyager, because it was the year one Voyager... Well, like, back the first was it dubbed like how do you do that how do you do that joke in dubbed french well you don't and and that's okay because it, it just switched it, to it, subtitles at that point no i was too young but like it came across as a very serious movie yeah. and also kind of a trip and then you know i rewatch it every once in a while and then i'm like oh my god they managed to get Spock to say I am penetrating the object and yeah and it's a space vagina because it's and, sure. and, and it just penetrates it and many I, of the same letters as uh, cross between vagina and Voyager yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then you know I mean I would be uh, I'd be very bad at Wheel of Fortune you guys <laughs> but have you heard of the story also of Decker so characters were supposed to be uh, part of the what was written for the second series of mm-hmm. Star Trek yeah and then they changed Decker to Riker so yeah. that they wouldn't have to pay him residuals. Yeah, you don't want to do that. And that guy apparently turned out to be a pedophile. We need uh, we need the, the money for the wood paneling on the bridge. <laughs> we can't afford those royalties. Yes. But Decker... Yeah, Decker like, was a pedophile? Yeah, Decker, like, he, he was... Uh, you know, that's why he never shows up at conventions. Shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Boy, they really dodged a bullet there. Instead, <laughs> they only had one pedophile on the show. <laughs> Captain Picard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was my... Uh, so so my, my, my exposure to Star Trek was really through the motion pictures... So the motion picture, the Wrath of Khan, which I understand um, you people are are very fond of. We're twenty one tour dates fond of it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's 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 an amazing movie. I like to think that uh, when they were coming up with the idea for Wrath of Khan, they were like, "I know we made the motion picture, but what if we pivot into something fun?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, they they kicked out Gene Roddenberry, so... Yeah, yeah, the motion picture was so self-serious. It felt like uh, going to a lecture. It was a trip. Radu Khan is the result of like, hey, we have a lot of 
hamburger makeup to put on people. Yeah. Uh, you guys want to make a movie around that idea? Has anyone ever fucked with ears in a major film? Oh, yeah, that's true. I remember that scene. The first scene, like, it, it leaves an impression. But I must say, my favorite of them all, and, and the one that's the closest to TNG, in fact, is number four. The Whales. Yeah. The Whales is great. The Whales has no villain. Ben and I had an argument about this just last night over Korean barbecue. <laughs> I almost lost my appetite hearing how highly you you slotted that film oh, in, yeah. your, in your Star Trek movie hierarchy. It's like two? Like oh, no. no, it's not two. Is it? I feel like you said... What's your number I feel one? Like you, it's in the top five for me. But What's your number one? Six, Undiscovered Country. I think four is as cheesy as First Contact. <laughs> and I have both of those films fairly low. I, I mean, you know, they're time troubles. Adam, uh, uh, Adam is just angry at it because one time he was on a bus listening to loud punk rock and somebody Vulcan <laughs> neck pinched him. Look, I just want... He took want, that scene really personally, man. <laughs> I want an Orbison-less First Contact cut. <laughs> like... Like, it's sort of related to a director's cut, but we're taking stuff away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, make it tighter. Yeah. The producer's cut. Right. Star Trek fans believe that. And so do I. Time travel episodes are, and time travel films are, are interesting because this is where you reveal the assumptions about the show. Yeah. Uh, so, I, th I thought The Whales is interesting in that. Because it's 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 uh it's in the same sort of uh, narrative box as Undiscovered Country. It's, yeah, it's making fun of the Cold War and those silly humans and you know silly twentieth century silly San Francisco double dumbass on you. Yeah. Um, we gotta sell the glasses that Bones gave me to get some money. And yeah, <laughs> and and uh, transparent aluminum and yeah. Uh, Hello, and, and computer. Computer? <laughs> computer? Um, I, what I like about it is, is that it's, it sort of articulates the utopian core of Star Trek much better than the other stuff, which is entertainment. And entertainment is great, and I'm, I'm happy to be entertained. I'm happy to be entertained, too. That's why I don't consider watching Babylon 5. <laughs> <laughs> Babylon 5 will make you work. Like, you will have to. <laughs> you know what? That, I feel but like it's, that's, it's the same as that's the how my wife reviews our relationship. <laughs> like, are, are you happily married? Adam will make you work. <laughs> I mean, but it's like Discovery. You know, you have all these little uh, Easter eggs and, and clues that are strewn, like, through all the episodes, and, yeah, yeah, and then you have to go back, and then when you rewatch it, you're like, "Oh, he said that," and and it rewards <laughs> so it becomes, careful attention, and it becomes this sort of interactive experience of rewatching, and then podcasting about it, and then the podcast about the podcast, and the <laughs> um, what did it mean? Like, was he really a Klingon or not? Yeah, yeah. Um, when you know. It's it's this sort of a payoff narration. This is your description of discovery. Yes, and Babylon hmm. Five. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, but again, you know, I'm I'm probably one. I'm old. That's for sure. And also, I tend to believe that. I mean, I personally, what I like about Star Trek and why why I love to watch Star Trek is 
precisely because in most of the episodes that I really like, nothing much happens, yeah. and, um, <laughs> and and it's more they're more like little philosophical treaties. Yeah, um, you know, like Darmok. Like there's nothing in. The, I mean, there's not nothing in Darmok, but it's like. It's There's cheesy. an action jacket in Darmok. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did you guys do for the Darmok episode? <laughs> did you speak all in? <laughs> I think we made a very half-hearted attempt in the Darmok episode to do something, but I don't remember actually doing. It. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I don't know. Tweet us. Let us know what we did. It's impossible <laughs> for us to remember. <laughs> it's all a blur. <laughs> Uh, I, I, but but you know like the kind of production that is required. I mean, it's not the same type of writing and production. Like you lay out the whole thing, and you have arcs and characters, and it's all on the whiteboard and all that. When you do twenty-four episodes on network, it's more like oh, we still have six to go, and uh, yeah, it's such a we long don't have runway. any money, and uh, yeah. we need to do a bottle show, so... Yeah, that's one thing that's actually a little bit of breaking news about Star Trek Discovery was uh, they're, they're really going hard after some awards. Yes. And one of the episodes that they've put out front... Uh, as award worthy is the magic to make the sanest man go mad episode, the bottle episode with Harry yeah. Mudd and the the repetitive yes. timelines and stuff. And it was just revealed that that was a money saving production choice and story choice. Like wow. they uh, they went for the efficient episode budget wise in order to get them to the finish line on the entire first they season. Added- Episodes to this first season. That's a, that's I also thought I remember hearing that. So <laughs> I, okay, I have a question. Like, what's with the long titles? No, uh, and, and the Latin. I mean, it's it's like it's like whenever an episode is in Latin, I'm like uh, they're very uh, look at me titles. Yeah. Like like I was an English major. Titles. <laughs> like, what know? was the one in Voyager that was like that? Like enim are uh, uh, interarm interarma enim silent ligate. We yeah, haven't like, gotten to like Voyager Cicero, yet, so we but, can't we can't uh, admit to ever having seen it. Voyager's the same season that had an episode title called Year of Hell. <laughs> like, oh, I like, it wasn't Voyager. I, it was I like my, Space Nine, I think. I Sorry. like my titles like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's the the pretentious title is something that you 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 find a lot in Babylon Five as well. <laughs> oh, so the it's also in that tradition. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm saying you know, it's like oh, this is you know, it's to it's to flag. It's like. This is a very important episode, so we're going to call it Passing Through Getsemane. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a very good episode, and it's very well written, And, and like, but it's, it's there sort of... There are very few special effects that look like they were rendered on a PlayStation 1. They were actually rendered on a Commodore 64 or an what? Amiga. No, like in, in Babylon 5. No way. And they were the first to do these renderings on CG computers. ships? Yeah. Wow. Because they didn't have money to do models. I mean, after 20 years, of course, we're sort of like, we're looking at this as if... But like, it's the same way we're looking at the original series. That that stuff's really clunky. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, like one step removed from Georges Méliès. It's, it's, so pretension seems to be one of the very important hallmarks 
of sci-fi in general hmm. like the sort of you know like, like yeah like I, mean, I, war I have, sci-fi i have smart ideas and i'm going to tell them to you through military this. sci-fi you know it's all like yeah you're like come on guys <laughs> uh, um i don't think next generation ever did any episode with a title that was no, I mean, they didn't do that with their titles, but what they did do was the thing that is so fashionable in modern science fiction, which is like turn a contemporary problem into a science fiction problem yeah. and then like slowly turn to camera when the point is made <laughs> about how to solve that thing. You see, Wesley, drugs are very bad. Right. <laughs> Our warp engines are polluting this yeah. galaxy, so I mean, we must slow down. Let's also not forget that this is a series that has many episodes in which the captain quotes Shakespeare at length. Hear this, Picard, and reflect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he can do, yeah, but like he, he actually has, he has the credit to do it. He does. Like, he does like, it well, but it's also like, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I guess, you know, naming him Picard and then giving him a British accent and such a great thespian. Yeah. Um, well... Did you just say Babylon that Captain Five, Picard Babylon Five could never Ooh. get away with those choices. <laughs> well, they had great actors. Uh, is uh, so. I wanted to talk a little bit about your book. Barry cause... Bixman is is no Patrick Stewart. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Uh, they, they, they had Stephen First from uh, Animal House. <laughs> That's a great get. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book because, like, <laughs> yeah, we need to be Ferengi a little bit. <laughs> so, so your, I mean, your book is kind of, kind of like, what is, what is actually like practicable about the economics depicted in in Star Trek, right? I mean, I was trying to like take it seriously as an object of economic theorizing, or you know, like, okay, so we have six hundred hours of TV. And they seem to be very consistent regarding the 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 way things work right, like in the what, background. How society, how the society that these people come from. Yeah, because one of the pleasures of any sci-fi, by the way, is to sort of imagine what's not on screen. Right. And it's like okay, so these guys are on screen, but like what what's like who's making the food? Uh, what do you do for entertainment? You know, like you go to Riza. Um, we had a conversation last night about like like what. What is in it for the people that like work as waiters in Ten Forward? And uh, the only thing we could come up with is like Riker is in there available for sex a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, they also participate in the uh, the poker game. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, Lower Decks is one of my all time favorite episodes. Yeah, mine too. It is is that episode where you see the the, the underlings. Is uh, your understanding that that stuff is all like pretty much in place by the time of discovery, or is is like no TOS uh, is like still there is this epistemological break between uh, the twenty third and the twenty fourth century, uh -huh. uh, and you know they don't have replicators uh, in the original series. They have barely functioning computers. If you remember <laughs> the movies. Uh, they they have like a galley kitchen yeah. where they make gah. so and mashed potatoes yeah, yes the fa that famous scene um, so if the, Adam can I if Adam and I could just have a podcast about the scene where she suits the mashed potato pot I think we would yeah <laughs> I, I, it's it's a very distinctive yeah scene um, 
And and she's. We've a, talked about how much we both want that prop so bad. <laughs> it would oh be God. the best, the ultimate. <laughs> I would like. I would clear everything out of this room and just put it on a pillar in the middle. Like, yeah. Do, do you I'd think put it under a glass dome. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think it's poured vinyl or vinyl or poured latex or something? Because it really looks good. It yeah. is. Uh, it's it's totally like commercial food magic. Yeah. Well, Star Trek Four is probably the one where they talk the most about it right until first contact where kirk says like we don't have money i'm not used to any of this stuff no even in the even in even in number four like the whales episode where they need to find money that's what i just said yes (laughs) (laughs) but it seems are you even listening are you trying to pivot us back into babylon (laughs) five it's been a don't manipulate this show man They okay, so that's the moment of the break, I guess. They well, okay. Here's the thing that I find annoying about the original series is they have credits, right? You know, like that's their currency. They have credits, like in mm-hmm. the Tribbles episode, like they're going on shore leave and they're they're buying and selling but stuff. Couldn't with that credits. be the same thing as no. Latinum in Deep Space Nine, where it's like this space no, station? No, they call isn't... it credits, man. Yeah. It's like every other science fiction show. In Star Wars, it's Empire credits yeah. or, you know, Resistance credits or whatever. Like, everybody uses credits. It's it's, it's such a... Um, I have a friend who wrote a science fiction novel, and he, like, sent it to me to, to, to read before he, like, sent it to publishers. And I think he was just like, yeah, you can read my novel. But what I presumed was that he wanted lots of notes <laughs> and he had credits i sent them to him yeah he had credits yeah, and I, I, that was one of my notes was like let's uh let's like come up with something better than credits come no, to it, the end of this story you're not still friends <laughs> yeah he sent back an email just like wow this is not really what i expected from this interaction i didn't think i had allowed markup in the, in the pdf i sent you <laughs> no but that's that's it's an important point because it means that nobody actually cares about the meaning of money and currency every every currency out there has a name because it has a history and it's embedded in it i mean the dollar comes from joachim staller uh in germany which were like uh, silver mines and it comes from the thaler which was the uh, money of, of the austro um like like uh charles quint charles v uh the habsburgs and all that stuff and it's these. It comes from the Hispanicization of Thaler, huh. so tolar and then dollar, and then dollares, and uh, so so every every currency that is being used has a history and is embedded in the culture. The shekel in in Israel is you know the shekel from the Bible, or the drachma in Greece before the euro. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it, the credit thing as as this sort of well, uh, and the euro like had a yeah, real the, tough time getting off the and it almost it just feels like fake money yes initially and like, it feels like a credit really yeah uh, in the same way uh, yeah so, so so there's this thing about um, not paying attention to these details that then was corrected later on especially in in. Uh, TNG, although, you know, it starts with uh, Farpoint and they're buying tchotchkes. But then, you know, the Latinum and and all that. And 
I think there's a real difference, and the main difference is the replicator. Right. And, and when you look at, I mean, you are scholars of the next generation. Is your book primarily about how the replicator changed no, the? No, no, it's a, it's a. Um, because the interesting part is the Ferengis also use replicators, mm -hmm. but they make you pay for it. Right. So, and they, they make a killing. Uh, and and it's, it's a great way to prevent bartenders from unionizing. Yeah. Because you can keep wages very low that way. Uh, you know, so, so this is a lesson to learn for uh, the present, I guess. Um the 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 decision to to make the replicator into a public good so something that anybody can use is essentially a political decision it, it that's the only way you can interpret the social place of the replicator and stop yeah that. like one of the first times i can recall the replicator being used in that way was like season seven of TNG when when like they have Rolaren set one up or they have Worf set one up on that planet that they visit with Rolaren. Like yeah. like it seems like they could be sprinkling these things around more Just than they the are. Replicators, yes. Yeah. Yeah, for for the Bajoran resistance. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yes. The replicator when you uh, Well they let Sonny Clemens replicate that five dollar carnival guitar. So. Right. Well it's a it's the neutral zone. Computer, can you make it stupider looking? <laughs> um, the replicator also like except for a very few episodes, there's the one with where it, the microcomps or the exocomps or whatever, yeah, like the, yeah. the little machines that self-replicate. Yeah. Um, the replicator otherwise is like pure signifier because it's, it's just the coffee machine in Picard's ready room, right? Mm -hmm. Like right. They, they could have, it's not that they wanted to save money on extras, like, you know, the guys who will bring the tea or anything. <laughs> um, they made a point of having replicators. So showing that anything you want is available uh, by voice command and will be produced, uh, you know, right away. Uh, it's, it's, it's like Amazon Prime, but better. And that you don't see, like they make a point of Picard sitting down and, you know, computer, uh, oh, what is it, computer? No, it's like tea, all gray, hot. Right. Uh, if the replicators work like Amazon Prime, that tea would come in a box like four <laughs> times too large with, <laughs> with like just a shitload of packing material yeah, like, around my, it. Like, <laughs> I ordered a, a replacement filter for our air conditioner and it came in... Like almost a refrigerator, a refrigerator box, box. <laughs> and uh, like a ton of packaging. And there, like, there's an algorithm behind yeah. it, I guess. I strongly believe, like, if Amazon wanted to, they could pivot into the world's biggest recycling program, like, and they could do a world of good by having curbside packaging material pickup for all of the, your prime items. Like, right. they if they just came a day later to grab all that stuff, right? But then it would be stored in some uh, hangar in LA because China is not accepting cardboard boxes anymore. Whoa. Wow. Maybe Amazon will change the way they package stuff. Uh, but yes, it's essential. I think, except for the part where you pay, the idea of, you know, this sort of jukebox in the sky that can produce anything, that's very different from the original series. And I think it's a political decision, but it's also something that has tremendous impacts on the motivations and the way these people think and 
Roddenberry very early on, like in the Bible of the show, actually laid out what it means. And these are people who grew up in a world of plenty and who have right. no... They're not stressed out by they're not, commercial yeah. or economic issues. There's a person behind the food slot on Discovery making those breakfast burritos with the sun-dried yeah. tomato salsa yeah. for keep, the lycopene, right? They keep several gimps on board yeah. to, to uh, <laughs> live in the walls and slide food to the... But But that's also, okay, that's the part of Discovery that annoys me to no end. It's the fan service. Because if you remember, in the original series, they have these slots yeah. where food is... Mm -hmm. So so that's what they're doing. They're they're doing the fan service of yeah. um, uh, updating and upgrading. And, and the fans are never satisfied either way. So I don't know why they feel so so married to that stuff. You know? Yeah, it's like a hostage negotiation, though. Like, where is your? Where do you draw the line on on serving them before you don't become the creator of the story you want to tell? Although, interestingly enough, contrary to Star Wars, where uh, you know fans will go on rampage about women actors. Like, there's very little of that uh, for Discovery, just because Star Trek is not as. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a little of it, but but it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, there were some people like bemoaning SG, SJWs and all that, but yeah. it was never it never reached the. I mean, we've seen people like like say that they hate the Greatest Generation because we're a couple of liberal cucks, and it's like, did you watch the show we're reviewing? <laughs> it's a fucking communist space opera. Yes. <laughs> yeah, somehow. I mean, it, it's. But that's why, you know, Ted Cruz is a fan of Captain Kirk. Right. Uh, he loves those credits. Yum, yes. nom, 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 nom. And also credits. Kirk fucks. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Ted Cruz? Uh, nah. No. Nah. No. No. Oh. Well, I mean, it's it's one of these things like, uh, uh, is it Shatner versus Cruz in a sexually compromising situation? <laughs> I, I don't know if I can pick any of them. Uh I mean, it's... Although, again, the original series is fantastic. You, you remember that episode? Like, what is it called? Uh, where Little Girls Are Not, or What Little Girls Do, or something like It has this very creepy title. Yikes. And, and it's the episode where Kirk is seen chasing an alien with a giant dildo. And it's, um, <laughs> I've only seen pictures of that episode. I've never actually watched it. And, and the bad alien speaks in a woman voice like it's all gender bending in all the bad ways right yeah <laughs> you know 60s i've only seen one episode of the original series and that was space suit <laughs> that's yeah. it adam actually did research for greatest gen con yeah <laughs> so adam you're not a tos fiend here's my position on that i was not a fan of the original series And didn't think I would be, but then I watched Space Seed, and I actually, it opened me up to the idea of watching more of it. Didn't we watch one for Disco? We watched the, uh... Because it's really Oh, we watched the Mirror episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mirror and Mirror, because it's tied to Disco. And both of those episodes I thought were really good, but we were also told those are some of the best episodes there are. Yeah. 
And they're not like great. They're just like, oh, this is better than I expected. It's I I would much rather be impressed by something that I go in thinking I'll hate than disappointed <laughs> by. Okay. So that's this uh, is, that's what happened to us when we went to see Solo. Yes, me and Manu saw Solo together. Yeah. We were, we we went in just bracing ourselves for a turkey, and we both pretty it much was pretty good. Really well, liked it. Well, there was no force and bullshit, so it was <laughs> it was yeah, it was a straight up uh, yeah. It's an interesting comparison between this and Discovery in a way. Like Discovery is fanfic, so is Solo. So and Solo is the kind of fanfic where I can get I, I can get on board with because it actually delves into you know some of the problems in star wars itself like say you know it's full of fucking slaves in star wars like there are slaves everywhere and uh star wars has traditionally had a slavery is okay policy (laughs) yeah i mean it's very disturbing right this is a disney franchise yeah it's very Uh, not free to be you and me (laughs) (laughs) so so it delves into that and it tries to sort of uh, make it a, a more of a problem discovery is also fanfic about the original series it seems to be um you use the term fanfic a couple of times and i want to uh probe that a little bit because i think the way i'm interpreting that description is that because it is it is not written by the original source material creators is that the definition that we're using when we use that term yeah or are you using it as like a dunk (laughs) (laughs) because it's not something that you like no because i actually i have Believe it or not, I, I I read a lot of fanfic, and I think you know fans are incredibly creative, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's something beautiful about the, this selfless production of stories that are just made for friends to be to be read, and it's basically to impress other people. Yeah, uh, and there's something really compelling about seeing Sonic the Hedgehog pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> if I if I. <laughs> Do you mean like engorging? <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, and you know, like one of the subgenres of uh, fanfic was slash fake and mm-hmm. the the Kirk Spock thing, which it started very early on. Yeah, uh, and in fact, brought to light something that was uh, implied in the show, uh, and one of the reasons people really took to the show is because it was essentially very queer um, before the word existed or was uh, fashionable. But so it's one of these things where, where the fans actually help generate additional insight and culture around the original material. Uh, and I believe that the solo movie, for instance, really took to heart some of the questions that have been raised in the fan community about slaves and slavery in Star Wars. Uh, at least try. I, so Discovery does that too, and and you know like, do Vulcans have emotions? And and it seems to be probing that sort of oh, or, or why are the Klingons so crazy? And it, it takes these little issues and and make them into um, standalone story drivers. Yeah. Um, and in that respect, it is fanfic. Uh, to me, at least, because but it's fanfic that it's it's almost like as if the fans have won, and now you know they have uh, 
certified fans who are also professional writers who write right. for the show um <laughs> it's and and their their take on it is really it's one take among many that's the thing and it turns out to be the one that's uh, sanctioned by paramount right but their take being that uh, we have found that our take is not sanctioned by paramount <laughs> Yes. Or recognized, <laughs> uh, and and you might not. And actually, you know, given what they did with Discovery, you might not want to be recognized by Paramount. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're uh, emotionally equal to the kind of hatred we would get. No, but also, you know, the movie, uh, the Star Trek fan movies. Like this is a big thing in the Star Trek community. Yeah, much more so than in the Star Wars community, where you know they do YouTube videos with like lightsabers, but that's about it. Right. I. This is like a a part of a larger conversation about what I feel like is wrong with uh, with culture right now, which is like the presupposition that like the creator of a thing is deserving of your opinion, whatever it is. <laughs> And and like those loud, angry opinions are form such a cacophony of right. of bad feelings about things that many many people like. Like I I realize I'm coming off as a hypocrite about this because Ben and I make a show that uh, that criticizes something that we love, hmm. while at the same time on occasion mentioning the ways in which we would do it better. And those are like things that are irritating yeah. for me to read about things like the newer Star Wars films or about Star Trek Discovery. But like, I don't feel like the creators of these things owe them anything and they don't owe me and Ben anything. Right. And I really, it's so fucked up how it appears to be having an effect. I am. Well, um, I have some friends who wrote on uh, Star Trek previous iterations of the show and their general view. And, you know, and they're professional writers, uh, not dilettantes like mm -hmm. me. Uh, and their view of the fans is like, yeah, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> but they're only writers, you know, so they don't yeah. have to, yeah. they, like, they don't take the brunt of, right. of the adoration or criticism. Uh, uh, the right. actors do, right? Uh, Which is crazy because the actors are just there to interpret the words. Like, well, it's the upside down world of uh, uh, entertainment, right? Yeah. It's, it's it's the people who actually do the very important work. You never mm -hmm. see them. Mm -hmm. uh, the actors, you know, like they're. they're I'm sorry, actors are expendable and interchangeable, and and they get old. Like. Something about like the promos for Disco show so much behind the scenes stuff, and I wonder if there's like an attempt to diffuse mm. some of that, some of that like vitriol, like by humanizing it in a like neighborhood theater yeah, type of way, right? Like, I mean, that kind of attributes strategy to something that it's. I'm not sure. Is yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, you remember like the the opening credits of of Discovery as like more executive producers than actors. So, uh, you know, I mean, this tells you... <laughs> like I said, $500,000 for cocaine on the craft yeah, services I mean, table. Yeah. They, like, that tells you everything you need to know about um, what a mess it is. Uh, it's a sh I, It's official fanfic. But that, that's my take on it. It's, yeah. it's a, and, and, and with the sort of... The, when you read some fanfic that is not very good... It has all these things where it wants to look and feel exactly like the original stuff. So it has to put all these 
references and cues and whether visual or in language and yeah. it's another question about this and and which you know goes to the fanfic issue why didn't they go for 200 in the future 200 yeah. years in the future like why not what was you can do it you get 10 million per episode you can do anything you want And they have to do, no, they have to do Spock's secret sister. It, like, come on. It's because uh, it's nostalgia is a shortcut to popularity, I why, think. Like, I wonder why they haven't talked about Spock's megalomaniac brother at all. I know. Right? Oh, Give I mean, me some of that Cybok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need Cybok. Yeah, where is Cybok? Cy I'm sure he's coming in the second season. I mean, like, if... if I would love that. Yeah, real, like, fan service of celebrating Star Trek V. <laughs> <laughs> But dude... A film I like more than Star Trek IV. You're I, I really like... You're I really a like, moron. I, I like Star Trek V. I'm stopping I, this podcast immediately. <laughs> I just found out my co-host, like... Like Star Trek V more than Star Trek IV. There is one great scene in Star Trek V. It's the opening where Captain Kirk, where Kirk is climbing El, El Capitan. Capitan. <laughs> great is not necessarily a word I would use to describe that scene. Like maybe in the context of great big piece of shit. But God damn, irresponsible. Uh, yeah, I mean the mention of Cyborg brings back all these memories. <laughs> Um, but like, okay, so why is it that the Vulcans, except for Spock and his father, are all like nuts? Be, yeah, because you need a villain, right? Or, or yeah. they're sort of uh, well, Vulcan extremists. Is, are, I mean, that's an idea that was explored in TNG too. Like, people yeah, and, that, and in Enterprise, yeah, um, like the fundamentalist Vulcan uh, is Enterprise canon. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I, I, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Look for my book <laughs> coming out next year. <laughs> oh, also, Manu, can you introduce us to, like, I don't know, some kind of book so, publisher? Someone who could teach me how to write a book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not happy about Discovery, but it's, it's just... It's just because I'm generally not happy about science fiction, and uh, I'm generally not happy that about... That seems to be a big part of being a person who enjoys science fiction, is having a lot to dislike about it, you know? <laughs> it's sort of like being a fan of a sports team that is right. unsuccessful. Like, yeah. it's sort of an identity, right? My wife doesn't dislike science fiction. She's just totally indifferent to it. Right. And yeah. That seems like a really healthy way to be. <laughs> yeah. No, I wish I, I, I were indifferent to it. Uh, I, but, you know, doing the book, writing the book, and then I had to rewatch all this stuff. And, and then I realized it's not science fiction that I really like. It's socialism. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, guys, support for the show comes at maximumfund.org slash donates. <laughs> yeah. Uh, redistribute your wealth to us. And, uh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, but what, what I, okay. I say socialism because it, it makes for a good joke. Although it's not entirely a joke, like the the utopian the the possibilities of 
uh, what we could be if we were better organized. Well, like, but, but why do the unionized starships run so poorly? <laughs> <laughs> the Enterprise never gets into port on time. Uh, but like the idea that like you could get to a point where making consumer goods is so insanely cheap that it is essentially free. But it already is. But but we still, you know, everything is still super expensive. And I think uh, Paul Krugman had the the perfect comeback to that. And his view is that human needs uh, uh, are always there are always new needs produced, and that's why we're always unhappy. <laughs> Because once you once you sort of like get past uh, making food for cheap or clothing for cheap or right. watches for cheap or whatever, you will always find something else uh, to make you unhappy about and wanting to signal to your neighbors. And that's a great point, and it's going to save me a fortune in therapy because yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm never going to get over this. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I've been, and, and okay, so you guys are going to make fun of me, which is par for the course, but... Uh, we would never. <laughs> I, I, I feel that, you know, in my life, in the past 10 years, I've been trying to slowly shed this thing and, and become a very simple person uh, in my tastes and in the things I do and in the things I consume. Well, it's also I have a kid, so if you buy expensive clothes, they're just gonna they're just destroyed. gonna get barfed down. Yeah, <laughs> so that sort of went away. And you know, you live in LA, so it's just gonna be shorts and t-shirts. And um, but I've been trying to to sort of live the life of uh, making things into becoming simpler and simpler, and trying to concentrate on. Worthwhile, worthwhile cultural pursuits instead of, you know, buying a new car every year. Um, and it's hard <laughs> yeah. because it's just... You, you're Culturally, going, we have a lot ingrained in us about like what we should be doing. Yeah, you're going against the grain. One person's worthwhile cultural pursuit is another person's Babylon 5, though. <laughs> <laughs> My people were biologically determined for one purpose alone, to sense the coming of death. What? To sense the coming of death. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like... 
little spring cleaning in your pants. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from what am I gonna have for dinner to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. This doesn't make any sense. I sense it coming down. None of it makes any sense. Sounds like nonsense to me. Adam, uh, no P1s for today's episode, but if folks want to get a Priority One message, uh, all they have to do is go to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message, and uh, you can... Uh, but if you have a book about Star Trek, you can just come on the show. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, those are a great way to support the show. Speaking of your book, Manu, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me be a Ferengi for a minute. I, I read your book. I was, I was, uh, I was recounting to Adam that I read your book because our show had come out, and you just tweeted me like, "Hey, you might like my book about Star Trek." Which, <laughs> which uh, the odds of that turning out well in my favor are pretty long. But I like went and bought the book, and I read it, and I really enjoyed it. So uh, I recommend it to anybody that's like interested in the practicalities of what's depicted in Star Trek. A big part of a book plug is saying the title. That title what? is Trekonomics, the Economics of Star Trek. Yes, by yeah. Manu Saadia. By Manu Saadia. And it's available on Amazon, Amazon and iBooks and uh, everywhere. Do you read the uh, audiobook version of it? Yes, it's a, the, the guy who did the audiobook version, originally they were trying to get... Uh, 
Will Wheaton to do it. <laughs> oh. But the feedback cool. was that he was not really engaged with the material. <laughs> was that, that a... That's a true story. Was that a poll quote that you put on the book? <laughs> like, I'm not very engaged with this material. Yeah, Will, Will Wheaton. Wheaton. Too busy playing tabletop board games to get engaged with the material. No, but I think in a way it was kind of perfect that Wesley wouldn't be into this. Um, well, he's too busy like uh, going no, I mean, to warp it, I, with his mind or dude, whatever. It, it would have it would have moved so many copies yeah. uh, but so no the, but it turned out the guy who did the audiobook in the end is this incredible voice actor called Oliver Wyman and mm. he he makes he does impersonations of Picard and me and cool yeah so it's really <laughs> funny uh, and oh, it's, man. A, it's a great listen that almost sounds like worth uh, getting even though I've already read the book that's Trekonomics, The Economics of Star Trek. It's my first and last book about Star Trek. <laughs> I will not write about Star Trek anymore after Are that. people, like in the way that we've described earlier in the show, like do people give you their opinion of it in a way oh, that is, I was, that is annoying? I was, I was told I was a Chicom and, uh, you know, uh, various... Uh, Various types of insults uh, sure. from, from very angry, uh, crazy uncles on the internet. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, the usual socialist squad on Twitter was always down with well, You got to break out your mute hammer and sickle yes. on those folks. <laughs> Everybody, they rose in their, uh, in, their, in their username on Twitter was like, great book. <laughs> yeah, but like the other thing is, in the end, it turns out like after, you know, the whole book and looking into this seriously and taking it seriously it turns out um star trek is pretty much keynesian you know social democrat it's not even really socialism in right. the way people depict it as you know um right it's, 1984. Not, like a, it's not like a planned economy it's like no yeah. the planned economy in star i mean no, let's stop. But like, I was going to talk about the Borg. But <laughs> speaking of cultures that really get it right, yeah. <laughs> well, it is the other post scarcity society. So. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, thanks so much, Manu, for thank coming you guys on the for show. having me on. Uh, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of the Greatest Discovery. What do we do? We let Rob take it from here. I think we have to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison, and it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusia. Head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to help with the ongoing production of our show, or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Make sure to use the hashtag GreatestGen or GreatestDiscovery when talking about the show. We'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.